Welcome, everyone. Full house. Excellent. Uh, this is the Walk Together Fight uh, to Fight Inequality event. It's a very important event, so thank you for coming. We're joined in London uh, by leaders, young and old, and from across the globe to talk about the long fight against deep systemic change to dismantle structural inequalities that leave so many feeling left behind in countries at all stages, really, of development. And what better place to have that conversation than here at the London School of Economics? I'm Max Foster. I'll be your host uh, for this evening's events. A pleasure to be here with such a diverse audience and a special welcome if you're watching via live stream as well around the world. Uh, the event's brought together by three very exciting groups who I want to introduce to you to get started. The Elders uh, is a group of independent leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela uh, back in 2007 to use their influence and experience for peace, justice and human rights around the world. Uh, the Elders have catalyzed, they really have, a grassroots campaign called Hashtag Walk Together, Continue Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. And to honor Mandela's 100th anniversary, which is this year, uh, the Walk Together campaign is hosting courageous conversations and public walks in support of the Sparks of Hope, fighting for the freedoms that Mandela was so dedicated to. And tonight the campaign is in London to focus on the freedoms, uh, the freedom for equality, really. Uh, now, we've heard a great deal about inequality in the world recently in the media. I've been part of that. Uh, we see that people are fighting back with hashtag me too, time's up as well, and many more actions. So we're asking why is this happening? Now, since the 1980s, inequality has been accelerating to arrive at the extreme concentrations of wealth and power that we see today. And we're asking what can be done, and that's why we've got these great speakers with us here tonight. Our first speaker is Dr. Gru Harlan Brundtland. He's the deputy chair of the Elders, uh, she's, of course, and she's the de medical doctor as well, of the former president of Norway and former director general of the World Health Organization and led the United Nations uh, World Commission on Environment and Development as well. So she has a full pedigree. Uh, now, the findings of this commission's work, known as the Brundtland Report, uh, brought the world's attention to the great need for sustainable development and made the case uh, to end poverty, human and environmental capital must be valued, uh, the report says, in order to have real economic growth. So who better to introduce this evening's theme? But we welcome Dr. Brundtland to the stage. We need to come together to stop the fear, xenophobia and hatred that is dividing humanity. Pinyu Mandela's long walk to freedom with us. Well, that was a great introduction to the meeting we are having together. So, dear all, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you here this evening at the London School of Economics for this event on the fight against inequality. As you have heard, the elders are co-hosting this event with the LSE International Inequalities Institute and the Fight Inequality Alliance. It would also not be possible without the generous support of the Atlantic Fellow Program, Fellows Program, and I'm particularly pleased to welcome the 20 Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity who will take part in our discussions, as well as all the people watching online via the uh, live stream. 
Our program here is part of the Elders Walk Together campaign, which we launched last year to mark our 10th anniversary and to celebrate the values of our founder, Nelson Mandela, during his centenary year. When Madiba brought us together for the first time in Johannesburg in July 2007, he charged us with a mandate that continues to inspire and drive us today. The elders, he said, should support courage where there is fear, foster agreement where there is conflict, and inspire hope where there is despair. These principles must guide us all as we reflect on how best to tackle the scourge of inequality that blights the life chances of so many people around the world. We need courage to confront the vested political, business, and economic interests who seek to maintain our current unequal order. We need to promote agreement inclusivity and consensus to achieve policies that work for the common good rather than narrow self-interest. And we need to inspire hope across all sections of society, especially young people, letting them know that their voices will be heard, their experiences acknowledged, and their ideas anchored into the policy-making process itself. Let me share with you a quote by the esteemed British 20th century political theorist, politician, and former LSE professor, Harold Lasky. Here is the quote. <laughs> a state uh, divided into a small number of rich and a large number of poor will always develop a government manipulated by the rich to protect the amenities represented by their property, end of quote. I'm afraid we must realize this is a global challenge. We are experiencing a growing gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, the most recent inequality report from Oxfam shows us that 82% of the wealth that was generated last year went to the richest 1% of the global population. The promotion of economic, social, gender, and political equality was at the heart of my own work as Prime Minister of Norway in the 1980s and 90s, and has remained the cornerstone of my international engagement ever since. My own work on the environment and sustainable development that was mentioned um, is part of a continuum stretching from the seminal Brandt Commission and also Olof Palme's uh, 1982 Commission on Disarmament and Security, on which I was happy to serve. All our efforts were informed by the values of equality, rights and justice, and crucially, they has, have had as their focus the whole of humanity. Among the elders, we have a number of key people who have been leaders in the whole process of defining first the Millennium Development Goals and then the even broader and more inclusive agreement on the Sustainable Development Goals 
and the Paris Climate Agreement. Our chair, former Secretary General Kofi Annan, and then, after him, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, were crucial leaders in this whole campaign, with several of us elders here in the auditorium working hard in their support. Today, it is so important that we have agreed on the Sustainable Development Goals. As a common project now for the whole world, 193 countries have committed to delivering the SDGs. And if they are serious about doing so, they finally need to show a real commitment to tackling inequality in all its forms. A wholesale paradigm shift is required in international economic policy towards a holistic approach that values access to health, education, and justice as drivers of a sustainable and green pattern of growth. We also have to deal with cultural change and shift the practices, both seen and unseen, that hold back women, young people, people with disabilities, and other vulnerable and marginalized groups from developing their full potential. To do this, the voices of the people must, most affected by inequality must be heard in the debates that now must follow. So, this is all of this background is why we are so delighted to be here with you this evening that we will hear from such a wide and diverse range of voices, from grassroots activists and campaigners who champion equality from Kenya to Mexico, from Tunisia to the UK. Throughout this year of celebrations, to mark Nelson Mandela's centenary, the elders are highlighting hundreds of these courageous groups as what we call the sparks of hope. Each spark is motivated by a simple idea of how to further the causes of peace, equality, justice, and health. We will gather these hundred ideas together and present them to the world leaders later this year as a blueprint for enduring change. I wish to thank you all for being here, for coming here tonight, as well as all those of you who are watching us online, I hope we will have a really stimulating discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brundtland. Now, up next, uh, a panel discussion for you, moderated by Christiana Figueres. Ms. Figueres is the former Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and led the groundbreaking effort to achieve the Paris Agreement back in uh, 2015 and now convenes Global Optimism. She'll lead a panel discussion on a topic very close to her heart. Uh, systems, not projects, how people power is key to transformational change and dismantling uh, inequality. Christiana will be joined on stage by Mary Robinson, a member of the Elders, of course. Mary was President of Ireland, 1990 to 1997. She served as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights from 1997 to 2002 and as the UN Secretary General Special Envoy 
for the Great Lakes region of Africa and subsequently as Special Envoy for Climate Change, championing the integration of human rights into many international treaties, including the Paris Agreement. Now, Hector Castanon hails from Mexico, an expert on development. Uh, He works in Mexico with marginalized urban and rural communities to mobilize local capacity for social change. He lectures on social systems theory, urban studies, sustainable development, and researches emergent social movements as well. A member of the Mexican Citizen Assembly uh, to address sustainable development, Assembly Objective 1 plus 10, the Mexican chapter of the Fight Fight Inequality Alliance. So, Christiana, could you take the stage? So, good afternoon, good morning. It's been a hectic day for me, I hope also for you, because if you're hectic, it means you're actually doing the good work. Um, So, I have no idea what time it is today, but anyway... Welcome to all of you. How wonderful to see a completely full theater uh, in my alma mater, the LSE. Um, It is delightful to be here with the two of you and particularly an honor to have this many elders together. Thank you very much, uh, all of you, for being here. Um, You know, I think we can have a very interesting conversation today because we have two people who have devoted a good part of their lives to the struggle against inequality from two very different perspectives. So Mama Mary, as I choose to call her, (laughs) Mama Mary has been doing this, as you all well know, uh, for the better part of her life, um, and doing it very much, certainly first from a national perspective, but more recently in just only the past few decades, uh, from a global perspective. Uh, with your uh, your fight on uh, on human rights and uh, and and how to close the gap on inequality, so very much of a global perspective. And Hector here on, on my left has actually been devoting his life to do the same work, but very much from a grassroots perspective. So very interesting to have the two. Um, and I wanted to start with you, Mary, if I if I uh, could, because I think you have. A, not only a good overview, but also a good long view of where we are in inequality. Yes, inequality between the genders, between countries, within countries, inside cities, between cities, anywhere you look, mm. there is inequality. Um, and so where are we? Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Are we standing still? From a global perspective, what is is your sense? Well, I certainly started off at a very early age because being wedged between four brothers, I had to care about equality equality (laughs) and human rights and using my elbows. But actually, the truth is, I think the situation is getting worse. I think the accumulation of wealth, and with that wealth comes a kind of power, and it's influencing even in democracies, influencing our systems. It's buying our systems. It's buying our politicians in some cases. And uh, so it is very worrying. And I think people are realizing just how uh, bad it is both within countries and between countries. Um, And it has become, I think, now a real issue for people. And that's good. Because when it becomes an issue for people, they know we have to fight this. And that's why this walk together on inequality is so important and how pleased we are Uh, to be joining with the Global Alliance to Fight Inequality, with people like you, Hector. uh, The elders are very, very keen that we understand that inequality doesn't happen by accident. It's a systemic inequality that we have to fight. And Mary, what what types of indicators do you look at when you say 
in, in such a passionate way that inequality is actually getting worse? What, what are you seeing? What, what, what is on your radar screen? We heard a number of them in Gru's speech and in the introduction um, this, this evening. I mean, just the sheer who is gaining most of the wealth of the world. It's becoming intolerable, you know, that six or eight people own as much as the, top, the, the bottom third of the world and, and so on. I mean, that's one indicator. Um, there's, there's also the, the violence that comes from um, a lack of access to justice, a lack of access to um, a sense of, of, of just having the right to basic food, health, education. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, we don't need uh, too many statistics in our world today because it's so evident and we have a very connected world, which is another aspect. Um, the eyes of the world see how in unequal it is. And, you know, we had a French Revolution when things got very unequal. And I think we're getting close to a stage where, if we're not careful, we will have more of a revolutionary um, sort of, uh, you know, rising up against injustice, the injustice of the inequality. And therefore, it's important for those of us who are working for democracy and human rights and you know, fairness in our systems um, to understand that we have to tackle this inequality. We have to tackle it at all levels, which is why I'm so glad to be talking this evening with Hector and what he's doing in Mexico. So, Hector, that's a voice of alarm. Um, let's, let's get to, uh, away from the global perspective and a little bit more granular. Um, is Mary right? Do you see on the ground really uh, an a, a increase in the tension and an increase in the uh, huge gap in uh, income inequality? And how do you, what evidence do you have for that? Is it leading to violence? Do we see some rays of hope? What, what is your sense? Well, definitely, we, we, have, we have it on the streets. We have um, on our fears, but we have it in our bodies. Uh, the sense that um, um, people are like uh, are getting fed up, um, people are, are desperate, and they do not do not see institutional means to solve this problem. Um, we see them every day crossing the railways to the United States, and yes, we we. Um, we have a lot of evidence on, on the violence that is coming back from the economic violence, from the political violence that the whole region is suffering. So, um, and if I'm feeling that, me, uh, somehow white, male, 40 years, there are much vulnerable people than me that will not, could not be able to be here because they simply don't have papers, they don't have passport, they don't have time, they don't have a day off to think about uh, this. We, they are the ones that are um, feeling this violence and then finding a way, um, a peaceful way to deal with this problem. But the, um, the roads are closing, um, the, the borders are crossing, the fences are growing. So, um, yes, um, I, I agree with, 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 with that, that you read at the global scale, at the, at the local level, it's, it's happening and, and it's killing us, literally. When you say you feel it, you said you feel it. Can you can you put more color into that? Yes, we feel the we feel the fear, um, and when we walk outside, we used to play um, on the street when we were kids, but now we are not. Uh, our kids are are simply just 
don't have the, the, the will to do it because they, know, they even know they are unsafe. No, it's not just us, it's they realize. Um, uh, when I became 18 years, I had to serve the state for the military. When young people become, become 18 years now, they are forced into the organized crimes. They're just taken away, they disappear, and that has happened to 30,000 people, um, most of them young in, 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 in my state only. So yes, people are, are, are feeling the fear. Um, people are feeling the lack of, of hope no, for, for a better future. So, um, and, and that's, that, that you, you see in, in, a, in, a, in, in the mood. No? In, um, so, uh, although of course we are, we're Mexican, we always find a way to, to smile, to be happy, we're Latin Americans like that. But when you are, are all by yourself and think about this, it's really happening. So, so that's what makes us take action against that. But Christiana, the good news, I think, is that because this inequality is so unacceptable now, people are deciding to do something. And they're doing it all over the world. And they're doing it locally. Give me more evidence of that. Well, look at our Walk Together campaign. We are linking with sparks of hope that are examples of Mandela's own values. Um, we have um, 53 of them at the moment. We're, we're going up to 100 by the end of the year in July. Our, our year ends on Mandela's um, 100th uh, birthday. And um, I saw this when I was High Commissioner. Um, I used to travel to the most difficult places and I would see human rights defenders who were doctors, who were teachers, who were housewives, who were nurses, um, fighting for space to breathe almost, but fighting for their rights. And it is now evident that you know, in different countries there is this kind of movement. Unfortunately, um, social media can help in that. It can help it, there's a negative side, but there's also a very positive side. If you want to gather... Now, I gather, Hector, you're into formation of movement. I'd love to hear more about precisely how you're trying to grow that in Mexico. Sure. If we, if we think that um, for every action we have a reaction, that it's um, uh, absolutely real. Um, uh, what are people doing? Uh, for example, um, a caravan of migrants, not larger than the people that we are united here, set off from Honduras like a month ago, uh, walking or finding their way to the US border. Um, when we think about people's power, um, it is also a real thing because uh, President Trump reacted with state forces to stop this caravan of around 1,400 people whose only weapons were um, empty uh, feeding bottles. And most of them, half of them were uh, women and babies. So um, when we start to realize that we have power to change things, that we um, are um, part of, of, of the system that can be changed. I mean, people make up institutions. People, um, institutions are, are made of people. Um, and that's one of the key aspects that we should understand, just like happens in climate change. Mm. Uh, um, if you start recycling, if you start use, uh, stop using automobiles and fossil fuels, then a change can happen. The same with inequality. We just have to realize what are the practices that are reproducing inequalities, um, and they happen at different layers. No? There are cultural aspects, there are economic, there are political aspects, there are social aspects um, that are reproducing inequality. 
um, uh, so if we come to realize that uh, we are part of those social relationships, then we can start um, adopting different practices and claiming no, a, a different state of, of affairs. And um, yes, in the face of all these um, problems, on, on all these fears, people are moving. Governments are reacting many times violent, violently, but if they react violently, it's because they know people are moving. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one also good sign that we yeah. can have from, from, from this. People um, in um, peri-urban areas are um, healing themselves, educating themselves. They are um, um, providing themselves with, with, with what they need. So they, are, they do realize that, um, that institutions, uh, that new institutions sh should arrive and that also brings hope. So um, we need, therefore, um, the solidarity because um, the hard the, the reaction of the state, the armed reaction of the state, needs for solidarity in the legal framework. What grassroots people are, are, are winning are battles in the legal framework. And we have a legal framework because we, as a nation, we sign international agreements. So um, the international layer, it's very important for us because it has given us um, instruments to fight against the, 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 the dispossession felt by the state, by corporation, um, the threat to our rights. So um, w what I want to say with this is that this solidarity, international solidarity, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense because we cannot make that change alone from the grassroots. Um, we are working, we are risking our body, we are risking our life, not me, but the people um, facing all these, all, all these political processes. Um, and that's why we are here, because we realize that we can learn from each other. And, yeah. and we're actually seeing, you know, in the Me Too movement, um, women, it started in Hollywood to some extent, it started with women who were able to stand up to um, bullying and um, harassment in the workplace, but it's become now a global idea of women standing up for their rights. India has two marches today for rape of an eight-year-old, rape of a 16-year-old, and thousands of people are coming out to march because that's no longer acceptable. I think you know, we're in a period where there is real hope that people can be inspired by the fact that you can stand up and fight against inequality, that you can stand for human rights, that human rights are the gift of uh, every, all of us. The Universal Declaration is 70 years old this year, and it was reaffirmed very strongly in the Sustainable Development Goals agenda, the 2030 agenda, and indeed in the Paris Climate Agreement that you had such responsibility for. Um, and I think the fact that women are wanting to stand for election, wanting to be decision makers, wanting to be involved in their countries, this, is, this gives great hope. I think we're moving into a period where we're really going to hear the voice of women at all levels of decision making, and that will make the world a better place. So what I hear from both of you is, yes, the recognition that the transformation needs to occur at the systemic level, and it's not a but, and as well that it is the human beings who are the people in corporations, in cities, in institutions, who are taking this challenge on and standing up for it. Now, I would like to push you farther in this, okay? Because I do think that ultimately we have to be able to succeed at both, right? Ultimately, we have to be able to succeed both at systemic because there is an enormous amount of top-down pressure that yeah. comes through sustaining that, mm. that inequality institutionally, yeah. structurally, systemically. 
and also, as you have pointed out, I hear you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear you saying the rays of hope and the rays of light are actually coming from individuals. So talk to me about that tension between the systemic status quo, let's call it, uh, in the best of all cases, that systemic issue, that systemic tension, uh, and the sparks of hope, to, to use that wonderful word that the elders are using, um, those individuals who are courageous enough to stand up in India, in Mexico, in China, uh, everywhere, to stand up for their rights and really call for, uh, for changes. How do, we, uh, how do we bridge those two? Hmm. Well, in a way, when the wealth is very entrenched and the divide is very wide, it becomes harder because the wealth itself uh, manages to own protects itself. The, uh, protects itself and owns the levers of power. So that's a really tough one. And unfortunately, that is happening too much. But on the other side, it's not just individual. It's when it becomes a movement, when you can gather it together, when you can align um, those who want you know, uh, education, those who want health, those who want to tackle early child marriage, those who want to fight against um, uh, violence against women, all of these issues. Um, the more we can make this a movement... Um, you and I are involved in trying to make a climate movement bottom up. And uh, I mean, the injustice of climate change is what gets me out of bed in the morning because it's an injustice that's already affecting the poorest and those who are least responsible, who don't drive cars and have central heating and big manufacturing. And yet they're buffeted and they are buffeted in their food security, in their livelihoods, in their ability to live where they are because of flooding or, or severe drought. And um, we need to understand that this is not natural, a natural phenomenon. It is human-induced, and there is responsibility, and we have to address this as an issue of justice as well as... So give me, either of you, an example uh, of history of a movement that grew out of awareness and increased consciousness of something that was wrong, just radically wrong and no longer acceptable, Mm. and where that movement actually was successful in bridging the gap and actually making a systemic change. What, What would be your top one or two choices, each of you, of where, where, how, where do we get indications that this is entirely possible? Mm. Well, I let Hector go, but I, I have one, but you go first. Maybe I'll say it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just the civil rights movement, I mean, uh, or the apartheid. Mm. Um, people knew that that was wrong, and people fought every day with the consequences of, of an unfair system. It's just when they saw different sparks and the possibility of not being alone and struggling against that, not being alone, and fighting a mixture of institutional ways, but also non-institutional um, uh, arrangements, it's what transfer, transformed this into a movement, you know, a, a movement that overflowed the, 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 the framework that institution proposed for, the, for, for them. So um, it, it's the same with uh, inequality. People are feeling every day, every morning, every time they, tr- they use public transport in Latin America, they feel that something is wrong. So uh, what we need to, to, the challenge here is to identify those uh, threads that could be like, um, um, be, that, that could be weaver, weave, woven. woven from the bottom to, to, uh, to the top. Mm-hmm. One of them is, for example, salary. No? 
Um, almost 40% in my country um, are, do, do not earn enough to buy the basic, uh, the, the basic um, um, sustenance. sustenance, right. So um, when you think about salary, when you think about social, uh, fiscal justice, and when you think about accountable social expenditure, we can work on that together. No? Um, there's so, those are just examples of, of, of how we can do actual things um, beyond the recognition of a problem. And, and that's a challenge, and that's why these discussions are useful, because we need to identify those particular aspects that effectively... Well, I, can, I agree with you on everything except one detail of what you said. Sure. Public transportation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that happens as well here. <laughs> because uh, I am quite a proponent of public transportation, okay. and I think what we are doing wrong in our developing countries is that public transportation is such bad quality mm. and uh, is contaminating as much as it is, and it's not being effective. If it were high-quality public transportation, we should all be using that public transportation. Everything else that you said, I completely agree with you. Okay. <laughs> Mary, your top choice well, of a good example. Yeah, I, I was going to use the fight against slavery, mm -hmm. which was such an important fight, and it was a fight against real wealth. People owned yes. people. They owned slaves, and they were debased and objectified and nameless and you know, came from the continent of Africa to the United States and so on. But we have a modern slavery in our world. Yes. So it's we have no to, longer institutionalized, but yeah, it is there. It is there. And we need another fight against modern slavery of, a, of much the same kind of um, organized in a people power way. And we do have the means now. We really do. And that's my, my, my real hope. Um, whether it's um, a climate justice kind of movement that's emerging in different parts of the world and beginning to come together for large marches when it's needed and before big um, climate events, it, whether it's um, you know, the, the, the march for inequality, um, uh, for, for, uh, against inequality. Um, I, I think um, we, we really do need to match the levers of wealth and power that are very strong with, um, with what moves politicians. I mean, you know, I've been there. I, I, I went around my country looking for votes. Um, if you get a very strong, um, you know, series of communications from the public, it frightens politicians, I'm glad to say. They can be frightened into having better policies and changing what they're doing. And I think we need more um, awareness of, um, you know, addressing those who hold power. Um, if it's democratic power, let's use the democratic means more effectively because... Um, we're, we're still not seeing the fairness of our societies. They are fairer. The elders often discuss the fairness of Nordic societies. You know, that is a model we should be trying to promote globally because you don't have the extremes of wealth and poverty. I mean, to some extent, I think in some of these countries it is getting slightly worse, but it's better than um, in, in, in other countries. And, um, uh, you know, I think it's, it, it's really important that we... Um, understand um, that, for example, it's possible in our world today now that everybody could have access to electricity. It's very doable. And if we did that, we would change people's lives. Unacceptable that it's not. Unacceptable that it's not. And there are these issues that we really need to harness um, a movement to ensure that, you know, this is, that this is done quickly and that the 1.2 billion or so 
can switch the light do have their uh, systems and they're off-grid, many of them, but they have them. But they have them. So our lovely ladies are letting us know that time has run out. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you each one very tough question for which you have one sentence answer. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> You said that uh, in the example that you picked of civil rights, you said people decided that it was not right. How does that happen? How do we as a humanity come to that decision point where we decide this is not right? In one sentence. <laughs> it is not that we don't know. It might just be that we don't care and we have mm -hmm. to start caring, and we have to um, start building hope through solidarity. Yes. Okay, Mary, that's a difficult one to follow. Very. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mary, the difficult question for you is, when does that tipping point come? Let us assume that we take Hector's advice, right? And we start caring. Uh, there still is a huge ball to be pushed up the hill. When does that tipping point come when actually you begin to see the politics changing, the economics changing, the social structure? When do you begin to reap the benefits of the transformation? What is the tipping point? In one sentence. It'll be a long one. <laughs> that won't. Um, I think the, the hopeful sign is we are seeing a kind of tipping point. Everybody knows the economic system is not functioning well. It's not functioning for people. It's not fair. And, you know, we've had economists spell that out for us. And I think that's important. So um, I loved the fact that you mentioned hope. Um, the elders really believe that it's the sparks of hope. It's the hope that we have in fighting for change. It's the way in which we can unite around the need for hope for everyone, not the, the bleak destitution of poverty for so many people. And that, I think, is, uh, you know, I think that tipping point is already kind of there. We just have to accelerate it. Good. Well, thank you very much <laughs> to both of you. Give her, give her a quality <laughs> alliance. <laughs> okay. That's okay. Okay. Thank you. We haven't come in any way far enough to overcome poverty and certainly inequality. I think first of all, we have to recognize the dignity of everyone. We need to change the, the development systems which enrich the very few and leave millions and millions of human beings behind. We also need to change the social norms, the traditions which devalue a woman simply because she is born female. So we must have the two objectives. On the one hand, doing everything that is needed so that more and more people leave that condition of poverty. And at the same time, we must fight against inequality. Systems, whether they are legal systems or they are administrative systems, make sure that everyone is treated well and without discrimination. Because uh, if we don't have more equal societies and more uh, equal distribution of the wealth and income that is generating in the world, then I think we will see 
more and more conflicted societies. At a personal level, I think we needed to recognize the humanity which is in each one of a human being, which we call in Africa Ubuntu. I am because you are. In that sense, we are all equal. Grazie Michelle. Finishing that too. Very inspirational women there. The next part of our debate is going to be about women, women stepping up, uh, building more equal structures and societies from the local to the global. And we have two very influential speakers. Of course, Ban Ki-moon, if you'd join me on stage, please. Uh, former Secretary General of the United Nations. You all know that. He's also an elder. We're also going to be joined by Njoki Njeu. And she is from Daughters of Mumbi Global Resource Center in Kenya. And she's got a very good local and an international perspective. I know what you're thinking. I know what they're thinking. We're talking about women stepping up. <laughs> <laughs> and there are two men on the stage, a majority of men. Now, this wasn't um, completely by accident. Talk me to use this one. Uh, this wasn't completely by accident. I did discuss this with Sharon from the elders group. Um, and my view was that perhaps we should have a woman. Then we talked about it, and we talked about it a bit more, and then we talked about the fact that Me Too, actually, for me, has been quite a sea change. So at CNN, we've covered Me Too endlessly, every day, I think, for a month, we covered it in one form or another. And we're still talking about it now, the repercussions. And for me, I think it was the first time in my career in journalism where men felt actually part of the feminism debate. And I could be entirely wrong here, and there are much more academic people and brilliant people here than me who can uh, speak to that. Uh, but I think for the first time, men started having to not just think about their actions, but how those actions were received. And because of that, they became more engaged in the debate. So, and Joki, I have to come to you first. Am I entirely wrong? Should there be a woman in this seat? No. Um... I think it's okay for you to be there, and you have my permission. Um, and I think what also makes it um, okay is that you recognize and you acknowledge the dynamic. Um, because I think that, I like to say that the patriarchy is very strong, and it is working every day uh, to diminish and, in fact, to destroy and to erase women. And if you allow me, I want to start uh, because this week, a few days ago, the world said goodbye to Winnie Mandela. And I want to acknowledge Mama Grassa Michelle because she did something that was really important, which was to acknowledge and to write a beautiful farewell message to Mama Winnie, recognizing her and and, and lauding her and talking about her achievements as a woman, as a freedom fighter in Africa and in Southern Africa, when many people were trying to erase that. Thank you, Mama. It was important. It was important and it was powerful. And for women and men, it is, it is important that we recognize that we build up and that we hold each other up. So for CNN and for you to talk about uh, Time's Up, uh, it is important because otherwise women's voices are erased, they are quieted, they are disbelieved, 
and uh, no one would have known uh, that this was a problem. Well, actually, people did know, but they didn't care and they didn't lift it up, as Hector was saying. The people know. It's not that people don't know. Whether it is inequality, whether it is sexual harassment and, uh, and, and sexual assault against women, uh, people know. The question is whether they act or not. So it's okay for you to be here. Thank you. It is in the Kenyan context. Uh, we are in the, um, not in violation of the Kenyan constitution, which, which says not more than two-thirds of one gender. So welcome and let's have the conversation. We did talk about it. Uh, Mr. Ban, would you like to justify your position as well? Um, do you think there was a genuine change this year? I think with this uh, B2 uh, movement, I think there's a sea change, as you said. I think this is a very positive uh, social uh, change where uh, people are now understanding that uh, men and women, they are equal partners. It's not just to shame or naming you know, men by the women. In the past, there have been intolerable practices where women have been violated and abused and harassed in their human rights, human dignity. Simply, they have not been able to uh, speak out because of their power relationship, social relationship, economic poverty, and there are many reasons why women have been treated inferior uh, to the men. It starts from uh, poverty. poverty. When there is a limited money, then when they have to send their children to school, then it is normally boys who have been chosen by their parents. So social system have been framed that way. Now with the growing awareness and rapid change of transformative changes of technology and information and communication, now this awareness of women's rights has become significantly raised. Now women's really trying to find their own esteem and self-esteem. This is, uh, I think, expression of this uh, self-esteem, which should be respected as, as one of the uh, quite the responsible and you know, social and political leaders. And I fully uh, support this. But at the same time, uh, we should not create a sort of some confrontation between men and women. We must understand that men and women are equal partners and should mutually respect. This is what I believe and should support all this um, uh, Me Too until such mm. time. Then there will be no violence, no abuse, no harassment uh, against the women. Um. When I ask my audience about Me Too, they come back with so many different responses, and it strikes me there's two levels. There's the Me Too as it's interpreted across Western culture, but then there's local issues in each country. You work very closely in the feminism debate on the ground in Kenya. Mm -hmm. Give us an example of how feminism and empowerment has worked effectively locally, but also plays internationally. Well, I... I um 
I want to appreciate that you recognize that there are many feminisms and that they are different. So the example, it's a very simple example. In Kenya, um, uh, there were incidents where uh, especially young women were getting stripped, they, like their clothes torn off, uh, especially in public transport. Public transport is wonderful, but it has a lot of problems. So if a young woman was seen as wearing a dress that was <coughs> too short by the judgment of uh, whoever, they would get stripped and in the process even sexually uh, assaulted. And so there came a movement in Kenya before Me Too and Time's Up. In Kenya, there was my dress, my choice. And it was uh, women saying, uh, how I'm dressed is my choice, and you shouldn't be able to say to me that uh, I am somehow disrespecting you or disrespecting your culture as you define it. So in many uh, African contexts, in many uh, Latin American contexts, in, and even in Asia, there are different ways in which women are seeing and are fighting against uh, gender-based violence, gender-based oppression, because it is not, you know, uh, the, in the African context, the hashtag is not something that is going to be able to uh, have the same kind of response or reach that uh, in terms, it will, it will reach the international audience, but for women at the grassroots, for women in communities, they will not be able to talk about those struggles and those issues that they are facing in the same way. Has it worked against you to some extent then, Me Too and the social media movement? No, it hasn't. I think it has, it has uh, amplified a voice and a struggle of women across the board because um, where I would uh, disagree with you is that in terms of what you said about poverty being a factor because sometimes poverty is not necessarily the factor that is actually uh, the catalyst in the, the sexual harassment and the, and, uh, and the um, sexual oppression of women. The socioeconomic is a factor, but uh, even in upper income contexts, Women are raped, women are assaulted. Uh, in, the, in the situations of poverty, I think it has many, many other dimensions in that they don't have sometimes the social or the um, health uh, support that they need in order to deal with the assault that happens to them. What's the role of international institutions here then, if it's largely a local issue, inevitably? This uh, women's right is not local issue. It's a human rights issue, and it's an issue of human dignity. That is why United Nations has taken it as the priority issues. Particularly during my time, uh, I have been trying my best to, uh, uh, first of all, uh, respect the women's rights as equal partners. When I took over my job, I found that there's a big disparity between men and women who have been taking some important position, the position of decision-making positions. Now, when we, we see all throughout our communities, there are many women in the lower positions, many, like not you know, senior or not important positions, while all these important positions of decision-making positions are being taken by men. That is systematically you know, making women always looking inferior. Uh, their salaries are much lesser than 
the, those of uh, men. That's why I really wanted to lead by example. United Nations shows some example. Otherwise, we will have no political moral voice. And I really uh, just intentionally, persistently uh, try to change it. By the time I left the United Nations, I think the ratio of uh, women and men at the senior level, like Assistant Secretary General and Under Secretary General, it came to six to four. And I have been reaching out to national government, just with the United Nations Charter, Declaration of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, meeting many world leaders, political leaders, and asking to change some systems. How many women parliamentarians do you have in your country? How many cabinet, women cabinet ministers in your country? It looked like, it seemed like uh, interference of domestic affairs. But when it comes to a human rights issue, then nobody challenged me. For example, maybe a president, the United States or some other Western uh, president would ask that question to uh, some you know, African countries or Asian countries. They might have been challenged why you interfere in our domestic affairs. When I raised this issue, they just smiled and they tried to change. Now, by this time, there are only four countries left in the world where not a single woman is represented in the parliament. And there is only one country in the world now where not a single, person, single woman is represented in the cabinet. So I've been naming, sometimes privately, so you have to change. This is institutional, institutional. But at the same time, we have to change the mindset, mindset of men. This happens from the family, home. Normally, the daughters are trained and educated that way, particularly in Asia and Africa, some Arab countries, where they have been taught by their parents, even by mothers that you are a girl and you should behave, you should act softly, etc., etc. Now, even in Asia and all throughout the world, it's now being changed quite significantly and rapidly. This is what we see in the, in the form of a Me Too, and that, that's a very positive one. I hope by continuing this kind of a political leadership role by the United Nations, by the political leaders, president and ministers, they should continue to do this until such time we see men and women equal. The global population of women is more than men. More than half of the global population is men. Then my, my argument has always been that Women should be given at least equal opportunities, if not more. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what Ban Ki-moon says there, because undoubted progress at the United Nations. In our reporting, though, what we found is that a lot of Western companies in particular are pointing to the senior women that work in those organizations. And then we discover that you know, there's a massive gap between that level and the bottom level, and actually the men dominate the middle level. And there's almost a feeling that they've done enough because they've got women into senior positions. But that, presumably, is just the start. But it's a positive start. 
Yes, and, and I think that when, um, when we look very closely, it is important to have women in positions of power and authority, but it's also important to change the systems that in which they are working. Because if the status quo remains and women are working in, uh, in systems whereby they don't get paid enough, they are, uh, we, we talk about where, for instance, programs come up because people are realizing that women need more opportunities. So they go to a place like Kenya or to Haiti or to Mexico, and they say, we need to create more opportunities for women. And they create, say, an opportunity where women are going to be working in factories. But in those factories, women are sexually harassed. They are paid poorly. Their working conditions are really quite dangerous in many cases, and, and so on and so forth. So their, their, their dignity as workers, as people, are not respected. But now they are in the workforce, and that's recognized, and it's seen as enough. But fundamentally, the system doesn't change. So the, the, the context that... Um, as feminists, as people who are concerned about human dignity that we are challenging is whereby the system also changes. So that in addition to women being able to earn a living and go make a salary, that they also don't go back home after working eight hours at a job and they have another 10 hours to do at home of unpaid care work, cooking, cleaning, taking care of their families. So the system... Mm -hmm. Uh, needs to be challenged, the system needs to, uh, to be able to work to support women. So I get a job in a factory, it's a job where I have dignity, where I'm paid well, such that I can in fact be able to employ someone to do the, to, to pay someone to do the unpaid care work. So that when I come home, I'm not coming home to then cook, clean, uh, wash and take care of uh, the domestic affairs as it were, because I am able to have enough of uh, make enough of a wage to, to get help to do that. So we are challenging the system that remains and gives women work, but only adding to their burden and not actually taking care of their dignity, not being able to reduce the burden that they, that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Well, time's up, which is appropriate. <laughs> um, and Joki and Joey, thank you very much indeed. Also, Banky Moon, thanks for your insights. Thank, thank you. you. Um, I am going to leave the stage for a woman, which is appropriate. <laughs> Again, uh, Professor Beverly Skeggs, uh, Academic Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Programme here at the London School of Economics. Uh, she's one of the world's foremost feminist soci sociologists, so she'll be able to put my comments into context, hopefully not too unkindly, and more recently has explored the social factors degrading our value system to implicitly discriminate against so many of the groups that we should be lifting to talk about the roots of inequality and structures we need to rebuild. Please welcome Professor uh, Skeggs. So to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. These words were famously spoken by Nelson Mandela, a global icon of freedom who fought for equality for all people. But the fight for equality is far from over. In fact, inequality has reached extreme levels. The richest hold an unacceptable concentration of wealth and power, whilst hundreds of millions fight to survive. This is an epidemic of exploitation, pushing the just, equal and sustainable world we want out of reach. It's unfair, 
but it's not unstoppable. All governments have committed to reducing inequalities by 2030. There is no quick fix. Change starts with us organizing together. If we want governments to shift from warm words to radical actions, we need a large, powerful movement of people. Together, we must demand that our governments fight inequality and adopt policies that allow us all to be free and equal. Join the sparks of hope from around the world who are fighting the root causes of inequality. Draw an unequal sign on your wrist below your fist and upload a picture with the tags Walk Together and Fight Inequality. Join the growing movement Walk Together to Fight Inequality. Help continue Mandela's long walk to freedom. Okay, well, welcome again to the LSE. Here at the LSE, we aim to understand the root causes of inequality. It's one of its long histories, especially global inequality. So I'm going to mention some briefly. These are global, they're structural, and they're systemic, and they're very long and they're very deep. One of the most important issues that we need to understand is the history of dispossession. It began here in England in the 1300s. It was a very long process. As the people were thrown off their common land to starve, and then they were actually shipped off to uh, America to build slave colonies. The ownership of property, the land that was once common, became central to profit, property, and political power. The relationship at that time between the king, the state, and the Virginia company was very close and was central to not only transporting the commoners, as they were called, to the new world to build the slave colonies, but also this link between king, state, and the Virginia company worked at legitimating the dispossession of those who'd been thrown off their land. The commoners were named in the symbolic media of the time as monstrous. They were branded literally with Vs as vagabonds and they were shipped off. This legitimation was developed historically into scientific racism. We live with it still. That is a long legacy connected to the dispossession of the commoners in this country. We should remember that the legacies of colonialism and slavery shape most of the institutions that we have now in this country. They particularly shape the financial institutions, which are very important in organising our lives. Investment vehicles, such as stocks and shares, bonds, insurance companies and debt, were all forged through the development of slavery. The connection between possession, property and law was also shaped through the relationship between dispossession and slavery. The category fit and proper person, which is now used to assess whether somebody can own a football club, was actually shaped through understanding and contesting whether a man called Lascelles in Bristol was fit to own slaves. We live with the legacies that we often do not understand. These are long, they are deep, and they are based on dispossession. They began here and they travelled through the world, and they remain. And these are the deep roots that we need to think about and we need to challenge. But the historical legacies of dispossession are not just about economic forces 
but they're about what it means to be human. The definition of some people as monstrous, as vagabonds, was also about the definition of them as inhuman. They were not given humanity. They were not considered to be people. They were chattels. And the beginnings of the first debates around humanism were all about what it meant to either be property or not. These are really important values. And when we look at gender, especially when we look at the organisation of gender in the Western world, we know that it's been organised around property. The marriage contract was a pure property contract. It has since developed, but in some places it still exists for that reason. It was about the inheritance of property. Property, ownership, dispossession. Women's bodies have always been central to this relationship. And what we now live, explore, know, critique as race, gender, sexuality and class were all shaped through these processes. They are the end results of what we began with. But that's a distressing, disturbing and long story and I've done it very quickly. What we also need to know in this very, very potted history are the amazing amounts of struggles that went on against all this dispossession, property and ownership. There were a huge number of struggles that took place right across the globe. People did not take this ownership sitting down. They actually fought against it. They fought, fought against brutality. They fought against being dehumanised. They fought against their delegitimisation. They fought against brutal power. They were not prepared to take the interests of profit on their own. They challenged through their own humanity. So what we have learned from this potted history, very long, deep history, structural, systemic history, is that real change comes from the people who challenge these structures, the structures that are developed in the interests of a tiny minority that travel through the world. People have struggled against them, and we can learn a lot from the struggles of people. And what I'd like to do now is switch into a different register and alongside a welcome for, to all the people in this room who are fighting against inequality, I'd like to give a big shout out to our Atlantic fellows. You know who you are. Would you like to stand up so we can wave at you? <laughs> and to our amazing Atlantic team. <laughs> who've been organising this whole event over there. Because these are the people here now who are fighting against inequality, who are doing amazing things. Our Atlantic Fellows are part of a 20-year programme, backed amazingly by a gift of £64 million from the Atlantic Philanthropies organisation. Eventually, we will be funding 600 fellows over 20 years. That's a lot of fight against inequality. And we are fighting and joining together with other organisations. Atlantic Philanthropies have also uh, another five amazing global programmes. Um, we have the, <coughs> the Aboriginal and the Maori Land Rights Group. Guess what they're fighting against? Dispossession. 
Uh, we have the Tucano Township Group fighting for health equity. We have the Global Brain Health Institute fighting for global brain health. And we have the Health Equity Programme in Asia. We join together with the Anti-Black Racism Programme in New York and we fight together against inequality. We also join with our partners in the University of Cape Town, in Santiago, in Chile. We are extending our links throughout the world and we will build through these amazing fellows, through their courage, through their research. For everything that they do, we are building that fight against inequality. And we know that a lot of the most important things come from solidarity amongst grassroots organisations. We currently have our 20 fellows in place and they come from 26 cities, 26 cities in 21 countries. They are working on incredibly important issues. Gender equity, of course, sexual violence, developing an Asia-Pacific film network, which is pretty astonishing, uh, community building and activism, tax transparency, degrowth, anti-capitalism, climate justice, housing, what is the role of the black middle class in South Africa? We want to know. They are critiquing philanthropy. They're looking at new frontiers in distribution of grants making. They're making legislative changes in Latin American countries, working on social policy and public policy. They're working on disability rights. They're working on peace and activism. Welfare states in the Middle East. Indian cash inequality. Um, and Adivati women in areas of la poor labour conditions. We are also going to start working on care work, on digital injustice, and on arts activism. So we are building our challenge to inequality through the most amazing group of people who are literally, as we speak, I hope, building these challenges themselves. They have a strong foundational understanding of root causes and developing impact. We can together make the world a better place. We're proud to be hosting this event here at the LSE and we think the Fight Inequality Alliance is absolutely amazing and we're very pleased to be working with them in the future. We feel privileged to have the elders in our presence who've been fighting these very important issues for a long while. And we hope that coming together at an event like this will make us all stronger because in solidarity we can fight global inequality. Thank you. Thank you to Professor Skeggs. Thank you very much indeed. Now, our next panel, moderated by an exceptional young journalist, uh, Yusra Elbegir. She was born in Khartoum in Sudan. She was educated, though, in Scotland. Yusra, equally comfortable producing media content for many audiences, having already worked across Africa, the US, and Europe for outlets including the BBC, Huffington Post, CNN and is now working for the Youth Broadcast Network, uh, Vice. Uh, Yusra is joined by two powerful voices for you. Aya Chebi comes from Tunisia, chairs the Africa Youth Movement, and is an active member of the Pan-African uh, Pan Citizen Action Group, Africans Rising. Uh, Ernesto Zadio is a member of the Elders and served as President of Mexico from 1994 to 2000. His presidency saw profound democratic reforms, strong economic growth, and social programs to tackle poverty. Now, since leaving office, he's focused on some of the foremost global challenges, including drug policy, nuclear non-proliferation, migration, and the development uh, agenda. Now, in addition to his work as an elder, he's director of the Center uh, for the Study of Globalization at Yale University. So he's a busy man, and he spared the time to come 
today, but I'm going to hand over to Yusra. Sorry? Did I? No. We thought you were the most important person. Yusra is the most important. No, no, no. Not the most important. Um, I wouldn't be a good youth panel organiser if I didn't try to get everyone in for a selfie. We let the youth down. So I think we should all put our fists in the air. If you've got the symbol. Right, is my arm long enough? I think it is. Are you in it? And then I'll take one, not a selfie, but still great. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, very millennial of me, I know. But that's, that's something I wanted to start talking about, millennials, that label. Some people embrace it. Some people think that it's, you know, disgraceful. Um, a lot of talk about us, you know, loving avocado toast, can't buy houses. Um, but realistically, the youth have done so much to offset the passive, self-interested governments around the world. Um, we've done that through grassroots initiatives, um, groups coming together to offset damage from huge climate disasters. You know, I've seen that in my home country in Sudan, there's flooding every year, and every year the government do nothing. And people's houses collapse, and youth have come together to try and help communities deal with flooding and rebuild their houses and try and get supplies to places where the government won't even go. Um, and a lot of what I've seen in journalism is that the youth have been offsetting global narratives that have misrepresented and undermine the complexity of our communities. Um, we've done that through storytelling. Um, in many ways, we've done that through writing. But what I've found is that we've actually taken a literal approach and offset images in the media through taking images ourselves. So what you see often, you know, we're always on our phones or on Instagram or on Twitter, but the images that we upload of our communities are more representative often. Sorry, CNN, where's Max? than what you see in mainstream media, because it's very it's in the moment. And Aya, if you want to come on stage, you're coming soon. <laughs> um, Aya was involved in the Tunisian revolution, which sparked events across the Arab world and led to the Arab Spring. And that's a case where youth came together and used social media to spread messages, to share videos, and show the world what was happening on the ground. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's an amazing full house here. <laughs> please, Ernesto, I'm going to come to you afterward. Please take the stage. Join us. <laughs> Join us, please, the youth. <laughs> we do invite you. It's like a vampire, you've got to invite him in. Um, yeah, I want to second that, and I think the word has a really short memory of what happened in 2010, 2011. Um, I come from a generation that started the first 21st century youth-led peaceful revolutions, starting in my country, Tunis, Tunisia, which you know all as the Arab Spring, but the Arab Spring is a Western narrative. Uh, on the mainstream media, we call it the Revolution of Dignity. And then it swept across the continent and across the world to uh, Yonamar movement in Senegal, protesting Wade, to Burkina Bay youth, protesting Blaise, to Gambia has decided, kicking out Jame, to Fees Must Fall in South Africa, uh, the student movement, and even in, in Europe, the revolution of dignity in Ukraine, Occupy Gezi in Turkey, 
to the Occupy movement in the United States. And I think the, um, the, the commonality of the 21st century social movements is that our organizing is completely different mm. from the ways uh, movements and revolution have organized before us. We have a new ways of uh, using creativity, using technology, uh, using satire and humor, uh, using art, but also I think what I would call we have a leaderless uh, leadership. Uh, it's not the uh, fight um, like it used to be for in Mandela and the Luther King and the Gandhi. It's everyone in the movement is a political actor and everyone contributes to uh, the leadership. And I think that's why we're also part of the Fight Inequality Alliance because they recognize the diversity of our organizing, the way they recognize the diversity of our identities. They recognize the intersectionality of this generation that we are more into inclusion of different identities. We are more into the intersectional of different struggles. Um, so I think for, for the first time, I think in the Alliance, I realize I'm in a space where it's not NGOized and telling us what to do, but actually just giving the space to us to organize the way we want and asking us what they should do. And Ernesto, during, during your time as president of Mexico, you showed that reform was possible on a large scale, economically, socially, politically. How do you think that the redistribution of economic power can happen in practical terms, where there is, it's bridging the gap between the poorest and the richest across the world? Well, uh, first of all, you have to have a political system that uh, is open to represent legitimately uh, every sector, every group uh, in society. When you have a political system that has been captured by a small group, uh, most likely you will have uh, very bad uh, results. And that has been, unfortunately, the history of uh, Latin America and of many other countries, when a particular group, usually with uh, too much uh, political and economic uh, power, manages to control the, the institutions and therefore the outcomes of those institutions. So a first step is to, to work hard to build a real democracy in which uh, uh, there is more opportunity for the very diverse uh, interest uh, of the people and the people to be represented in that political system. But that's only one step. Uh, the next step is to, to make sure that uh, the institutions are responsive uh, to those uh, political, uh, new political representations that are active and they have their place uh, at the table and that uh, also you think about uh, the policies that will respond to those uh, interests. And this is important because sometimes uh, uh, people worry a lot uh, about the what, and that's certainly important, that's a first step. But you also have to be worried about the how. Mm. Uh, sometimes you have very good intentions but you can, can have terrible outcomes. This is not only about having good wishes, good will, and good objectives. I think you have to think hard about how to go about it. Mention was made of an anti-poverty program that we had in Mexico during my time in office mm. that now has been replicated in more than 40 countries, conditional 
cash transfers. And the intellectual history about this program is quite technocratic. Mm. You know, of course there was a group of people, first and foremost, uh, in that case myself, worried about uh, how resilient extreme poverty happened to be in certain sectors of the Mexican society. Uh, and many people were worried about that, but uh, we also worried about how to go about it. And we did a lot of research, a lot of thinking, a lot of experimentation until we came uh, to the design of this uh, program, which at the time was called uh, Progresa, and now generically are known like conditional cash transfers. But this is just an example. Don't worry only about the what. Uh, this is uh, th because then you become Manichaean. Problems happen because there are good and bad people in the world. I am good, the others are bad. Mm. And when you think like that, probably you will get nowhere. Mm. You also have to be worried about the how and be rigorous. And it's great that we are at a great school because a lot of ideas about uh, how to do the how have been generated in institutions like this. What we need to do is to bridge somehow the world of the advocacy the world of uh, activism, the world of people who are sincerely worried about the big problems that we have uh, in the world, with that world in which ideas on how to solve those problems are being uh, generated. So my advice always to my students and to young people is yes, uh, you have to be worried, you have to be concerned, you have to be active but you also have to worry about the how. Mm. And for that, you have to be prepared, too. If I may ask, what, what would you have done, because you talked about the elite, <coughs> what would you have done differently in your term? Um, would you have been more critical of the elite that captured the state and built um, infrastructure with public money? Or would you have listened more to youth to lead the solution in Mexico? What no, what I did was very okay. simple, you know, to... Uh, first of all, uh, to tell my party, you know, that had been continuously in power for 70 years, uh, you know what, we are going to be serious about political reform uh, for two reasons, because it's good and because it's also in our own interest, you know, to have a real democracy in Mexico. So we are going to work with the other parties, and I call the other parties, this cannot be alone do alone by the president. We have to work uh, together. And I couldn't engineer the outcome, but what I knew that it was very important in my country to level the playing field of political competition, that that was a first step. And we achieved that, not me, everybody who was part of that. You don't want to say, I want that outcome, you know. You have to work a process, and the process uh, goes through democracy, but real, effective, uh, participative uh, democracy. I think that's uh, the key. And how do you think young people can be involved in structural change, be stakeholders in it? Because often you see young people gathering when there's youth political movement, it's often seen as anti-establishment. How can they work together and create something that is beneficial for everyone? Well, they have to work uh, together, first point and don't start uh, doing, imitating the adults, yeah. you know, fighting for power and playing dirty tricks mm. to, to achieve uh, that uh, power. 
what I would tell young people today is that you are not terribly original. <laughs> we were also, <laughs> you know, and, and this comes uh, because, mic. you Turn know, this, this, this year, this year, this year, not only uh, in uh, my own country, but in several countries, uh, we commemorate uh, something that happened exactly 50 years ago. In fact, the whole thing started next month in May, started in Paris and Berkeley uh, and in Mexico. It started on, I remember the day, uh, July 23, 1968, right? And there was a student movement. And, uh, you know, many people speak about uh, 1968 in Mexico. I think it was a turning point. But it took a long time after 68 and the very bad things that happened there, you know. Uh, but I think that was the beginning of the construction of modern Mexican democracy. And that was young people that uh, started that. So that's why I'm telling you that you are not terribly original. <laughs> we did it before, and it can be done, right? And I can provide proof. Yeah. Of that. Can I jump in? Yeah, no, go for yeah. it, please. Um, I think it's, it's great that we're not um, original in that way, which means organizing movements. And we didn't have Twitter or Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think what, I think, um, I think I do appreciate that the previous generations fight, especially in Africa, I'm completely fascinated by the liberation movements in the 60s and the Pan-African spirit and how they managed to organize across borders in such a, a, a terrific solidarity without even having the technology we there, have today. There's a freedom fighter from Nigeria there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I think is that the, um, as time passes, um, they, the, who were young at the time, they become uh, more comfortable mm. with the system. Yeah. And then they don't like change. Um, they like the system as it is. And they don't realize that youth is radical. And they don't recognize the radical ways in which we have different concerns. We have different fights. We have different visions of the future. So that's when the clash of generations happen, because then they give up on being radical and become part of the system, and then we have to fight that system. Um, so we're, we're not really fighting individuals, we're just fighting a system that is uh, led by old men, you know? So they think... <laughs> they think... Sometimes I get this a lot, that you're ageist, but it's not about age, it's really about the system itself. Um, the other thing I wanted to really um, tap on is on the inequality and on the, um, and, but also on the political system. I think, I don't know about like, I agree on representation and pluralism and democracy and all of that, but how can you explain that today uh, young people are disengaged from uh, uh, running for office or even voting, even in this country, the turnout of vote is decreasing um, only in 2017, I think it went up a little bit. But in general, in the words, uh, young people are not running for office and are not engaging in political parties. And many people think it's because of uh, disengagement of political participation, which I don't think it's true because youth are marginalized and they're striving for political participation. But I think it's because political parties, systems and structures are hierarchical, 
are centralized and are male-dominated. So again, even in that discussion, it's about the system itself and it's not about who, who is playing the game in there, but it's about that structural change. So I don't think, um, in many systems, I think, yeah, we can reform, we can um, shift, we can change, but I think we need to have, start having a conversation about radically changing the system that it's just not working and youth are disengaging from it, are disengaging from political systems and are disengaging from the economy. Many young people today prefer to freelance and travel around the globe. You have more travel bloggers than <laughs> engineers um, just, just you know, <laughs> traveling the world, not interested to have a property because they have a virtual office and they can do their work where yeah. they are. Um, but also I ask myself sometimes, how do we explain that my cousin who was radicalized in 2013 to go and fight with Daesh when he just graduated as an engineer and he could have the opportunity to work in a company? Was he really interested to have money in Daesh uh, or interested in to be part of the capitalist system? Or was he just fed up of the nation state with all its political and economic system? Mm -hmm. So we need to start asking ourselves the questions instead of blaming youth for being violent and being gangster and being criminals uh, and putting all these labels on them. And actually, what's wrong with the system? Mm. I want to talk about organizing spaces. Because, for example, you have this in Tunis, we have it in Sudan, you have it across the world that now the internet is a place for people to discuss things, to come together, to organize. But that obviously leaves out a whole group of people who don't have access to the internet. How do you think we can, and it's not even just that, it's even when we're discussing things with elections, it's an echo chamber. We're talking to the same people with the same views. We're not penetrating anything to actually change people's minds or come to an agreement. With your experience in Tunis, how do you think that we can move across class boundaries, race boundaries, gender, to discuss with people from different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and come together to fight inequality, to fight injustice? What do you think could be both of you? What are your thoughts? I think first, can I? No, no, no. (laughs) I'm just uh, to to cheer her. (laughs) (laughs) I think first we need to recognize that almost... Um, half of the world's population is offline. Yeah. So when we cherish technology and when we cherish our advancement, we need to recognize the digital divide. And um, mostly women are caught up in that digital divide and that's what makes them invisible and that's what makes their voice unheard. Um, but also in terms of organizing, so I lead a movement called Africa Youth Movement and we have 10,000 members from 40 countries. And when we started organizing, we started in 2012 as a Facebook group. Basically, people who have the privilege to be online because internet is a privilege in many countries. Um, And then started organizing. And when we reached these 10,000 people who have the privilege to be online, who can, we have trained in so many tools to use online to do communication, then we established hubs in different countries. So now we have five hubs and we're establishing 15 other hubs. And these hubs work at the grassroots level and the national level. And they are the link for us on the uh, Pan-African level. Um, I think there's so many creative ways on how to connect. Uh, I think in the spirit of this generation, we are global and we are interconnected. And when I travel across Africa, I feel home uh, you know, in any corner of Africa. There is that interconnectedness. But I think in terms of technology, we need to recognize where technology is not accessible, but we need that's equality. We need to fight for it to be accessible to everyone. 
Um, again, in, in, the, in, in the inspiration of the liberation movement in the 60s, I think their motto was, my liberation is your liberation. Tunisia is not getting independence if Senegal is not getting independence. And I think today, we need to reach the ultimate solidarity that my access is your access. If you all here have access to education, your job is not done until we have access to education in Kenya or in Senegal or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be, again, in governance, there needs to be the use of technology to make governance accessible to everyone, to make every citizen be able to, you know, in Kenya, they look up on their, um, they're, they're so tech savvy, and they have this um, app where you can just text, I want the, to see the financial report of, of some ministry, and they can get it. Um, so how can we use that technology that is accessible to us to make governance accessible to every citizen so they can hold governments accountable? We don't have much time left, but Ernesto, I mean, I know you're the cheerleader, but we're going to give you equal time to answer this same question. Please. Well, no, I, I go more to, to basic things. You know, the things that bother us, uh, poverty, uh, inequality. Indeed, these uh, modern tools uh, can be helpful. Mm. But I think we have to speak uh, about more basic uh, things. Uh, what is the proportion of people in Africa who have no access to electricity, for example? And it's a huge proportion. And therefore, they, they, they haven't seen, and probably will take many years before they can see a laptop or an iPad or one of these uh, new means uh, of work and, and communication. Uh, what is the schooling, uh, the average schooling in, in poor countries? How many people have access to basic uh, health uh, services? Uh, why wealth is concentrated in a few hands? I think all of these uh, questions uh, have to do, yes, uh, with politics, but politics that explains uh, policies and the characteristics of uh, institutions. So we have to go deeper and say, okay, what do we have to do to make the political system to really work uh, for people's basic uh, needs? But it's not only about uh, technology, because even if you have the resources, you don't have the will, political will, and the institutions to deliver the solutions, you will have no solutions. And, my, and nowadays, you know, there is this distraction. People speak about... Uh, uh, inequality and like to speak about capitalism and uh, globalization and some people even blame uh, technology. And I said, let us be serious about it. You know, uh, This is about uh, political power, this is about policy, and these, most of these problems ultimately are policy design. You know, people in the United States, for example, they have very bad uh, income distribution compared to Latin America, my own country. And people start talking, and pop, uh, politicians like the present president blame the Chinese or the Mexicans, globalization. They call it globalist. And I said, come on. And some even blame technology. I said, come on. This was designed by the system. Here you have the median wage in the United States has been stagnant, zero growth for 50 years. Are you going to blame trade or capitalism for that? That's ridiculous. There is something in the system that makes ha things happening like that. Why is it that countries equally rich or even richer than the United States 
have better income distribution <coughs> because they have different policies. Mm. So my call uh, to young people is number one, think about the how. And second, don't give up on politics if you really want to make a difference. <laughs> you know, this rather superficial criticism of politics, uh, I don't buy it. I think humanity has had two great inventions that had made a huge difference. One is diplomacy. If we don't have diplomacy, we will still be in the caves fighting against each other. And the other one is politics. Without politics, we will be extremely primitive. So what we need is more young people don't giving up on politics. I accept that you dislike uh, politicians and even old people like myself. No, but, not true. But what we want to see is people like you <coughs> active in politics, fighting for political power. And maybe sometimes, because I, I know you will be successful in politics, you know, a younger one will come and make you accountable. And I think that's part of the game, right? I, I, I respect the political win, diplomacy, and all of that, but I think we're missing people power in this conversation. And I think technology is disruptive. You can have refugees who don't have a shelter, who don't have, uh, you know, people in African villages who don't have electricity, but they will have a mobile phone mm. in their hand. And that's the power of technology because it's disruptive. And I'm not saying that I will not pursue political career, but what I'm saying is that we need to change the system of politics as it is right now. We need to change the system of political parties that are hierarchical, that are patriarchal, that are centralized. And we are more of a generation that is going into decentralized structure, going into empowering people to have access to you know, services and to make government I mean, governance is service delivery. So they need Just to have. Tell me, so they need to have what are you to going to have in lieu of? And I will be very happy. I'm all in favor of revolution if it leads somewhere. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in my region, a lot of people have talked about revolution. As we speak, we have an extraordinary example in Venezuela. They spoke about the Bolivarian revolution the 21st century great uh, revolution, and it's a unique case in history in which a very rich country with wonderful resources, wonderful people, and actually a good sound democracy by Latin American standards has become what I predicted 15 years ago. I said, Venezuela, and I say this with all due respect, and I hope the situation changes. Say Venezuela is going to be the Zimbabwe of Latin America. Well, and unfortunately, I was right. Well, you know. Tunisia's revolution, as an example. Uh, well, and right? I hope they, uh, yeah, Tunisia. and I am all for revolution, but it yeah. has to lead to somewhere, and you have to say, yes, I don't like this system, so I will tell you what system I like and how to get from here to there. And I will tell you, beware of uh, ideologies, beware of populism, beware of demagoguery, beware of uh, the promised paradise. Mm. Paradise, well, I'm not religious, I, and maybe I shouldn't say what I was going to say, but, uh, <laughs> uh, well, the Pope said the other day that uh, yeah. hell doesn't exist, so I can say that maybe paradise 
But just just wanna yeah, yeah. yeah on, on Tunisia's revolution, just wanna say that in that journey that we're having in system transformation and system change, I think again talking about inequality, it is the neoliberal system that is in our face um, trying to kind of hinder that transformation. So we in January, just this year, we had people rioting in thousands in the street who had a youth face again against austerity measures that were implemented by the government that was imposed by the IMF. So again, it's about changing the systems that are not working. So even if we want the revolution to work, then there are a lot of layers of systems to change. And I think one of them, um, especially in Africa, where we have absurdly the average age of African leaders, 66 years old uh, in a continent that has 70% under 30, I think it's for this generation to listen to us, to talk to us, and to trust us to lead. Um, many of those we were inspired by when they were in leadership are still clinging to power. So I think one of the changing of the system is to have youth occupy that space and leadership so they can think differently of different systems and then they can experiment, they can do their mistakes and then move this word forward. Okay. With all that, I agree. So that the old man doesn't suffer fall tonight. <laughs> Thank you, panel. Who do you agree with? The old man or the unoriginal youth? Tweet Yusra. Um, well, now, we've heard from people from every continent already, which is incredible. Now someone who works close to home. Please welcome Vanda Wiporski, uh, Executive Director of the Equality Trust. Her organisation is a UK charity that campaigns to improve the quality of life in the UK by reducing social and economic inequality. She's an activist, author, speaker, media commentator who's led education policy and campaigns in the trade union movement on issues including anti-bullying, race, child poverty, social mobility, and violence against women and girls. Thank you. In the UK, infant mortality is rising, and it's directly linked to socioeconomic status. If you're poor, you're more likely to lose your baby. Young women and girls are missing school and not going to work because they can't afford to buy sanitary protection when they get their monthly period. A man born in the wealthy area of Belgravia in London will enjoy 32 years more of healthy life than a man born in Blackpool, a town in the northwest of England. We have four million children living in poverty, and this is set to rise. We have teachers, police officers and nurses, professionals going to food banks. This, my friends, is the story of UK inequality. Or should I say the story of the have-yots and the have-nots? This is against a backdrop of a damaged social security system providing an ever-shrinking security net. The growth of the so-called gig economy and privatisation where people are stripped of employment rights and earn low wages while employers divest themselves of responsibility and cream off the profit. But we must not forget that while inequality harms us all, it hits some of us harder than others. The Runnymede Trust and the Women's Budget Group sh have shown that in every income group, it is black and minority ethnic women who will lose the greatest proportion of their individual income in tax and social security changes. In the UK, over half of disabled people, or only under half of unemployment people, uh, of disabled people are in employment. Each year, over 50,000 women are discriminated against at work because they had the temerity to fall pregnant and many lose their jobs. There is discrimination in our labour market, 
whether it's in terms of age, sexual orientation, religion and belief, race, gender, gender reassignment, disability, or indeed class. And as well as a gender pay gap, an ethnic minority pay gap, a disability pay gap, we also have a class pay gap. If you do the same job with the same experience, but you happen to be working class, you'll be paid up to £7,000 less. We must not forget that this discrimination in the labour market and elsewhere delivers greater income inequality for some individuals as a result of multiple deprivations. And yet, there are politicians claiming that inequality is decreasing in the UK. While there may be a very slight decrease, according to one particular set of statistics, and within the margin of error, levels are still dangerously high. If you congratulate yourself on bringing down deaths from cholera from 2 million to 1.99 million, then you still have a lot of deaths from cholera. In our Equality Trust Pay Tracker report, we found that the average pay for a FTSE 100 CEO was £5.2 million. That's 165 times more than a nurse's salary and 312 times more than a care worker's wages. Our UK wealth tracker found that the richest 1,000 people own more wealth than the bottom 40% of households. In the last year alone, the combined wealth of Britain's 1,000 richest people increased by 82.5 billion. So when they say there's no magic money tree, they're not looking in the right places. And yet we see these crises as unlinked flashpoints rather than symptoms of the dangerously high level of inequality. Gender pay, the collapse of big businesses, the rise of underemployment, and an increase in violence and racism. Inequality increases when people are anxious about their social, and leads to people being anxious about their social status. The rise of populism sees people kicking down on migrants and not looking up to those who have caused their economic woes in the first place. We know that material differences create social distances. We see governments, funders, NGOs and philanthropists mopping up the chaos of broken lives, placing ever more bandages across the wounds caused by inequality. We need them to fund the challenges to the structures that are causing those wounds in the first place. What if we all joined together with those working on other inequalities and said we will not let this system ruin our lives and those of our children and our grandchildren? What if we all really challenge the structures and systems at the heart of perpetuating inequality to shift power and privilege in a massive transformation that would make all of our lives better? Isn't that a prize worth fighting for? And in this week in particular, as a descendant of slaves, I want to draw your attention to the people power effort we've seen in the UK. Our Caribbean grandparents and parents came to this country 40, 50, 60 years ago. And we've now forced, through people power, a change in the government's attitude and policy, which has allowed them to stay in a country where they've been working and paying their taxes and bringing up their children for many decades. So when we fight, we can win. <laughs> Inequality is not inevitable. Privatisation, employment rights abuses, low wages, gender issues, lack of universal access to health care, 
damaging extractive mining, and lack of access to a good education for all. They are all policy choices. So, esteemed elders and partners of the Fight Inequality Alliance, and brothers and sisters across the globe, your issues are our issues. We fight your fight. Your struggle is our struggle. And your victories will be our inspiration. So today, tomorrow, and into the future, let's walk together to fight inequality. Thank you. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Grasta Michelle soon. Also got a special performance. Um, so stay with us around the world on the uh, stream. But first, we, we hear a lot about culture change. But we do know, not always, what it means. And do we believe that deeply embedded cultural shifts are possible? Well, please welcome Jahar Takore of the organization Safe Hands for Girls in the Gambia. Um, she's living in Atlanta now, and she's been named one of the 100 most influential people in 2016. Jahar's a survivor of female genital mutilation, one of the few with the courage to fight back and to bring the world's attention to this horrific practice. She's here to tell us how changing culture is critical to prevent holding women back. Jahar. Thank you. Um... So I want to start by saying that I actually live in the Gambia now. I moved back home with my children last year. And um, around the world, we continue to see some key factors embedded in culture that continue to prevent women from realizing their position in society. Some of these um, factors include the economic disempowerment of women. A lot of people may not think of practices like FGM and child marriage as economic disempowerment, but when you look at the society where I'm from, the first bad thing that happens to a woman is female genital mutilation. And then she's prepared for marriage. And when that happens, her education has been cut short. And a lot of times that woman has been subjected to a life of planned poverty. And a lot of us don't look at these practices that way. <coughs> Our lack of political participation and the reason why women don't participate in politics is not because they don't want to, but when a woman stands for politics, the first thing that's questioned is, is she fit to run? And another thing is, a woman is defamed. Recently, in the political, um, the local government elections in the Gambia, a lot of the women that stood for politics have been called all kinds of names. And there are young women in my group at Safe Hands for Girls. And we had a conversation about this, and a lot of them said, Ms. Jaha, we will never run for politics, and I asked why. And they said the first thing that happens when you run for politics is you're called a hoe, you're called all kinds of names, and you're shamed, and your past is used, but when it's a man, that never happens. And if we don't change those kinds of things, women will never feel the courage to run for politics. And looking at the AU summit this year, I looked at the photo, and every single person that was in that photo was a man. Imagine that picture. Let's think about if those men had a closed-door meeting that had to do with women's bodies. There's not a single woman within the African Union that's representing us. And those men have absolutely 
no knowledge of what goes on, if they have to make a decision about abortion, if they have to make a decision about child marriage, if they have to make a decision about female genital mutilation, there's not a single voice in that room that's going to talk for us. And for that reason, we need to encourage more women to participate in politics. We have to support them. We can't continue putting them down. And restrictive family laws also contribute to some of the cultural, because when a girl is growing up in a lot of societies, she's told that her place is in the kitchen. She's groomed into becoming a housewife to say, I personally, if you look at my outfit, it's not iron. I don't know how to iron. I've never learned how to iron. <laughs> there's a lot of household chores that I never learned to do. And I think there's a reason why from a young age, I think, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to stay at home to learn how to cook. I didn't want to stay at home to learn how to iron so that I can be someone's perfect housewife. I'm the only person in my family that went through high school. And when I came to the U.S., I was forced to get married at the age of 15. My marriage ended after a few months. I pushed myself to attend high school. No one helped me in that process. I then went on to college, and now I've earned my master's degree. Not only am I the first girl, but the first person in my whole village to earn a master's degree. So between men and women, which I think is an impressive thing. But when we police girls and we tell them that their place is learning how to be a woman, we've literally told them that they can't be better than that. They tell us not to be too ambitious. They tell us not to dream bigger because you're just a woman. But we don't have a choice but to dream bigger. It's our role. I mean, right now, when I look at Africa, when I look at issues like FGM, they're not ending because the West is saying that this is bad. They're not ending because men are helping us do it. It's us survivors who have lived through these practices that are getting, us, getting up every day, convincing our parents, our leaders, our religious leaders, that these practices have to end. And Africa is going to change because of women. A lot of our celebrated heroes throughout history are men, but that is changing. I look up to women like Mama Gracia. I look up to women like Mama Winnie Mandela. And there's a lot of heroes throughout our continent that we need to celebrate. So we need to unlearn the culture of us celebrating men and start celebrating our women. That's where cultural change matters in the fight against equality. If we don't change these perceptions, we will never achieve equality, not only in Africa, but around the world. These are not problems in Africa. These are global problems. And it's all of our responsibility to make sure that these ends. The same way we teach our daughters not to do certain things, we need to teach our sons on how to behave. That's key. And thank you. There's a story we're all going to remember. Thank you to Jahar. Uh, we now welcome our closing keynote speech, Grasa Michelle. Grasa uh, co-founded The Elders back in 2007 with her husband, Nelson Mandela. Uh, she was the first health and culture minister of her native Mozambique. Uh, she's uh, been a lifelong campaigner for women and children, as you all know, and she's inspired millions of Africans and people all around the world of all ages and continues uh, to work tirelessly to do so. Her 1994 report for the United Nations... I'm going to carry on. I know you know all this, but... 
people watching at home might not. Uh, the 1994 report for the United Nations on the impact of armed conflict on children, the Michelle Report, broke new ground, establishing an innovative agenda for the protection of children caught up in war and changing policy and practices across government, the UN and civil society. Following Grasso, we're privileged to hear as well from a young South London voice as well. Uh, they're called Potent Whisper, but first of all, Grasso. <laughs> Thank you very much and good evening. Uh, it is extremely difficult for me to speak tonight after I have listened to the series of uh, interventions, particularly from young people. I just feel totally inadequate. <laughs> and um, I had prepared some notes and I decided to move away from them and I'll try using my very informal way of communication to uh, touch on some of the issues which I believe um, characterize inequality in our, in our times and how you, young people, uh, in your own way of organizing and using the tools which uh, are in your hands, Perhaps you, you need to look at this inequality, big beast, in different ways, but then to change effectively our societies. Let me uh, begin by saying, for me, I think some of the uh, most striking uh, aspects of inequality today are race, gender, income, and voice, wherever you are. I think if you look carefully, you'll realize that as human family, we haven't crossed the bridge of accepting that race is not anything which divides us. On the contrary, every single human being has the human dignity. And in that human dignity, which somehow is expressed by the fact that I cut myself, my blood is red. And a person who can be of Indian origin or white or of any other race, when he or she cuts, has also the same kind of red blood. We are absolutely equal. But in the structures, in social structures and even political structures, economic structures which have been established and we are living in, go wherever you are, you go. Even if it's in the so developed countries, black people have known a sense of equality and exercise their rights anyway. It is an issue. Second one, as I said, is gender. It goes across the globe. It doesn't matter where you are 
It doesn't matter even of which race you belong to. It doesn't even matter what each age you are, whether you are a woman, you are young, you are a girl. Just because you have been born female as human family, we haven't crossed the bridge of accepting that men and women are equal. The third element which I mentioned is income. And this comes to the systems which I'm going to talk about uh, in, in a few seconds, is that the structures which we have been allowing to govern our lives as human family are in a way where income defines opportunities or non-opportunities and we are at a situation where simply because you are born or you live in certain families in which you don't have those opportunities, your income and prospects are limited. I'm not saying they are not existent, but I'm saying are extremely limited. And we have allowed ourselves to value people according to the power of what they have instead of defining and accepting people according the values of who they are and what they are able to give to society. So the having or not having has shaped in recent times actually the control of structures, of institutions, and even the control of our countries. And even of multilateral institutions are controlled by those who have much more income than others. So this thing of income, for me, I think it's the third one. The, 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 the last I wanted to mention is the voice. Uh, as elders were talking during our uh, discussions this, uh, during the day, we're talking about women's voice. But I want to add the voice of young people, the voice of the disabled, the voice of indigenous people, the voice even of smaller countries compared with what is considered to be bigger countries, the voice. And when I say voice, I mean the possibility. It's not the ability. The possibility which the structures allow you, whether you are female, whether you are young, you are disabled, you are in a, a small, the so considered a small country, as if nations are to be measured according to the number of people they have or the number of, or the quality of development which you can call. But the possibility of expressing yourselves and putting across your aspirations and it to be taken into account equally, equally, and be valued equally, that's what I call voice. It's not because people don't shout. There are lots of people who shout, but if they're not listened to, they, uh, their aspirations and their demands are not being taken into account, so they don't really matter when decisions are to be made. The voice, I think it's another element of classifying who, who 
at the end of the day, the decision making, which is going to rule the world, who is listened to and who is taken into, into account. And in this voice, I want also to say something is that it's not necessarily many times that it, people do not speak. It's because, again, the power, the power of decision, it's not in the hands of those who have a just cause. And we talk of justice amongst us. It's not whether you are just or not. It's the power of those who have the control. So we are, we are, we are caught up as a human family in terms of values. What are the values which are running, are guiding our relations as human family? And how do we really embrace one another on the basis that all those differences, they don't count to the fact that from my veins, it's, I have the red blood and anyone has the values and the value of human being. There's, let me come now to Mandela. We, as elders, we decided to, let me say it in my English, to use Mandela as a reference. Take him as a reference. It's not the human being he, he, he is. It is the values he embodies and he represents. And because these values, we, begin, we understand they are, they, are, they are really extremely alive and inspirational for the challenges which we still have, we decided to celebrate our founder, but we want to offer to, particularly to young people, Mandela as values, as values. And we chose to talk of peace, to talk of health, to talk of justice, and today we talk of inequality. But all this to be tackled and resolved on the basis of values. So we need, I want to challenge young people to go back and say, what is the value system which we want to embrace? It's up to you now. Mandela, he was, I mean, is a reference of the 20th century. You are in 21st century. You have knowledge, you have tools, and you have the ability to connect in seconds. You can communicate in millions. We there was a reference to this. And those days, <laughs> I was saying, it is true. I don't know. No, it was Ernesto who said, we didn't, we didn't have Twitter. <laughs> so you have, you have absolutely much more knowledge, which is based in the experience of the good things which Mandela's generation did, but also the wrong things Mandela's generation did. And these are lessons you have to take from. You have the tools. You have the knowledge, you have the ability to communicate, as I was saying, in a way you can build movements very easily and very quickly. 